Happy New Year, Philo community. I know this is one of those years where the weekend after Christmas happens pretty quick. So, you know what, maybe since your church can stream services like a boss now, which is because of you, they've decided to get it all done ahead of time and they gave you the Sunday off. I hope that besides that, you've been able to rejuvenate, spend some time with your family, stay in your pajamas all day, perhaps binge watch The Mandalorian again. You know, the really important stuff to do the week after Christmas. I hope you had an amazing run of services and that you feel the pleasure of God for the work that you did. We have the privilege to be created to serve the Bride of Christ in a very specific way, and this has been our game time. If now's the first time you've been able to sit back and take a breath, take a moment and go to our website, philo.org slash blog, and you can read the short Advent readings to help remind you of why you work so hard in December. Also, in case no one says it, thank you. Thank you for all your effort to create space for your church so that God can show up in people's lives. You know, you're a key component to how God wants to use the church to reach your community. So way to go. And while you're at it, why don't you thank your family for me? You know, our families, they sacrifice a bunch so that you can be at church serving. They have to share you with that. And none of it would have happened without their support. So you know how a lot of times we're invisible, what we do? Well, our family's efforts are even more invisible. So make sure you thank them from Philo. Thank them for yourself too, would be good to do. If you're new to our podcast, our goal really is to help technical artists in the local church to become more effective so that our churches can become more effective. And we do that through the Philo Conference, Philo Coaching, Philo Resources, Philo Staffing, and the Philo Podcast, which you are listening to right now. So of course, you know that already. But as part of our Philo Coaching Division, we're starting up a new Philo Coaching Cohort on January 19th. The first version of the cohort was an amazing time with 10 other technical artists from around the world. We were sharing ideas and helping to encourage each other. I host the four two-hour sessions, and I have been amazed at how similar all of our situations have been. Regardless of our geographic location or the size of our church, we all face similar challenges. And one thing's for sure, during COVID-19, I mean, all of us were really craving community with fellow technical artists, and the cohort really checked that box for me. So if you're interested in joining in for the next one, if we haven't already sold out by the time this episode goes live, you can go to our website at philo.org slash coaching for all the details. All right. For this episode of the podcast, I got to chat with Alec Takahashi. Uh, he's a touring lighting designer who got his start by being thrown into the deep end at his church, Bayside, doing lights at the age of 15. And I, I don't mean make fun of Bayside because, you know, great job for developing young talent. And Alec is one of those. He's been a breakout teacher at Philo in the past, and I love getting to hang out with him. So this was really fun for me. So let's just jump right in. I'm joined today with good friend Alec Takahashi. And now that I'm saying it, did I even say your name correctly? Oh, yeah. You nailed it there. <laughs> oh, well perfect. Done. Yeah, nice. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This yeah. is actually uh, actually my first podcast, so I'm kind oh, of really? nervous here. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Nothing to be nervous about. This is actually probably a good first podcast to be a part of because we're pretty low-key around here. Yes. Everything I listen to always just sounds like a good uh, good hang on a podcast. So. Yeah, totally. We're just, we're just uh, some distance between us here. Yeah, exactly. So, Alec, tell us maybe a little bit. Well, maybe let's back up. How did we meet? So that's something we talk about on this podcast. And before we started recording, we were trying to remember. And I don't know that there's a specific moment that we can you, nail down. 
Yeah, I, it it runs through my brain of of uh, I, yeah, it's all foggy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is very possible through uh, through our friend Chris Thomas at, yeah, at Cherry yeah. Hills and in Colorado, or back when I was uh, traveling with Lincoln Brewster, we probably came through Willow and met sometime then. But right, right. I have been to Philo a few times, and yeah, and you I have. Think, I think uh, I think it ultimately was uh, was Chris Thomas that kind of. Uh, Started everything Hold for us in. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll give him credit, but let's not tell him about it because I think it go to his head. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got to watch out for that on him. Yeah, for sure. So, why don't you tell us a little bit, just back way up, and like, how did you get into this? How did you end up where you are now? Yeah, yeah. So, right now, for the past few years and up to this point, I've been the lighting director for uh, Thomas Rhett, the country artist, and. Okay. Um, yeah, this year's been slow. Uh, that's 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 what's been happening for us this year. We actually did get to do a, a couple of filmings in Nashville a few weeks ago. We did a nice virtual music festival for iHeartRadio, which was fun to get the gang back together and do some things. And I didn't actually get to sit behind a desk and program and run. It was more creative uh, vision with the iHeart team, and they had a great okay. great team of designer and programmer there, a guy named Mark Carver, who's a brilliant TV designer, and programmer is Andre Petrus, who's uh, also a brilliant programmer, so it was great to work with them, and just good to be back with the with the crew, do something. Sure, and right. Then be in rehearsals for a couple weeks, too, is weird, weird feeling, because uh, right. our last show we actually did, which our last show was October 12th, 2019, so Ooh. it's been a while. To yeah. do, a, wow. do a show in front of an audience, so it's—I don't even remember what it feels like, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's going to feel like the coolest thing ever or terrifying. Like, yeah, yeah, you, well, we all did you a, people are so close to me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we we did a uh, we did a nice Thomas Rhett team Zoom uh, a couple months into the COVID lockdown, and uh, at that point we hadn't fully canceled our year yet for this okay. year. It's just kept right. being postponed. But we were just saying, like, how stoked people will probably be once we get to play in front of an audience. People are just, you know, desiring live music. They're, they're, right. they're waiting for it. So when we do get to do or when anyone gets to do a uh, live show in front, of, in front of an audience, I'm sure it'll be quite a wild time. Yeah. Well, you think, it too, about when you're kind of conditioned to get feedback on that magnitude, you know, like thousands of people screaming your name or or whatever, you know, just appreciating what you're doing. Uh, That's like a drug, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The the energy is fed off of the audience energy. And and it's always, uh, you know, gauges a good show from uh, at least Thomas feels off the audience. So a a bad show just means the audience wasn't really... uh, interactive or, or into it, not necessarily that the band did something bad or something. But sure, right, right. Yeah, and that, uh, that was what was weird about doing this uh, iHeart thing. We had a, a, a big LED wall downstage of the stage that had a virtual crowd on it, and they all had little <laughs> virtual seats they were sitting in. Okay. <laughs> but what was weird is we could see them, but there was no audio back to us. So Got after it. every song, like, you could see some clapping and cheering, but it was just silent. And, uh, right, right. <laughs> just a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre environment. Oh man! So, how did you end up? Are you the the LD? Did you do the design work for this tour, or what? What's your role, kind of? Yeah, yeah. So, them? the official role is touring lighting director. So, okay. I go along and make sure that the show is consistent and and uh, put together every night. 
and the production design was designed by a company called Fireplay for the past two years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, led by Nick Whitehouse, Kelly Stixel. They brought me in. Well, we had a mutual friend named Brian Vaughn that brought me in. That went on to who now works at Fireplay. But okay. I was brought in in twenty beginning of twenty eighteen to take over Thomas. And at that time, they had already done the production design for that year. And I came in in the spring and worked with Nick Whitehouse on some programming for the show. At that point, I was still pretty hands-off and just kind of seeing how Nick's workflow was. And primarily, I programmed the media servers that year. Okay. And then, and then took the show on the road and made it happen each night, cloned to you know festivals, uh, whatever we happened to do that year. And then the following year, 2019, Nick was pretty hands-off that year. They did the production design again, um, but Brian and I pretty much programmed the whole show 2019. Okay. Uh, no media servers, which was a breath of fresh air. Because everything... Yeah, something different. It is Less very programming, different. Yeah. yeah, a little simpler. It, it was it, nice I mean, to have a full just lighting rig. And, I, and Thomas said in, in the end of 2018 when they were starting to talk about uh, 2019 that you know he just was kind of overwhelmed with the video content world of every live show having it and he just he wanted a big lighting rig let's just take yeah. a step back and have some lighting and it was a big lighting rig and uh it was it was nice and just a lot of uh, updating positions each day that's what yeah. it was <laughs> well it's interesting too cuz i think the like having video content is really cool but and everybody uh, well there was a time maybe it's over where people were like yeah we got to have it so we get this big LED wall, and then you realize, oh my gosh, we have to put stuff on it. We exactly going to pick that stuff, and, and it, yeah, it the amount of a, work that goes into yeah, just yes. picking the exact right content and nailing it exactly, perfectly right. Yeah, exactly. Just, the rehearsal process when you have that extra layer, right? Yeah, the just, syncing oh up, God, especially if it's yeah. all custom to music. The totally. syncing of it, it's. I think it's an art form to make video content look intentional for right. yeah, for it, real. there's there's a lot of a lot of live shows i see that just it looks like they threw video content together and there's right. nothing that nothing cohesive about it to the show and it, it can be overwhelming and it just gets costly as well it's it's not right, the cheapest right. thing to have someone make some custom content so it adds right. up quickly into your uh, production costs creative cost and whatnot yeah, so right right it was nice to uh to to take a break from that and just have a big programmed lighting show Right. Now, so how did you end up lighting on tour, doing programming? Like, I'm assuming you didn't just jump into touring. I mean, you mentioned no, you were with yeah. Lincoln Brewster, but maybe back all the way up. Like, how yeah. did you get into it? And going, going back into the time machine, which I guess has not been that long, but uh, <laughs> I always, uh, you know, started having an interest in, in First, theater lighting. Okay. Because I remember as a child going to, you know, I, I grew up in the Sacramento area of California and going down to our, you know, Broadway region of Sacramento. Right. I remember as a child going to some of the local productions as well as some of the touring Broadway acts that came through in shows. And I was always fascinated by lighting textures and colors and, and just that behind-the-scenes part of it. And right. uh, I grew up going to a church in just north of Sacramento called Bayside Church. And uh, at the time, it was just a single campus growing rapidly. And I remember yeah. going to children's ministry. And then I remember going to Sunday Sunday service with my parents sometimes and uh, just being fascinated by the lighting there as well. And um, 
I, I always had an interest in that. So it was in, I remember specifically in fifth grade, randomly someone, uh, <laughs> one of the teachers asked me to run lighting for the talent oh, show. Okay. And at the school, it was just in the cafeteria stage. They had a bunch of right. not even real park hands in there. And it was a bunch of presets just on the wall. There's probably 12 buttons. Okay. I decided to kind of get creative and, and go along with like changing the lights up during songs and whatnot. And everyone was like, oh, we've never seen this before in, in, <laughs> at the talent show. So uh, that kind of started it for me, funny enough. Uh-huh. And then from there, did a lot of volunteering in student ministries at Bayside and then up into weekend services. And it just kind of kept progressing. And I remember... I would desire to go after school and just kind of play on the lighting console. Right, right. And it, it just kept, you know, speed, speed rolling up from there and uh, okay. ended up getting a part-time job at Bayside when I was 15. And nice. it was at a point where the lighting director at the time, who was a great mentor, still is a great mentor, a guy named Dave Carr, who now uh, lives in Nashville and is in the touring world. He had left at that time and it was... Me and another 15-year-old guy named Pete that we were kind of just keeping lighting afloat at Bayside for a while. <laughs> they didn't okay. have a staff guy. And <laughs> looking back and thinking back on it, I, I have no idea what they were thinking, just letting two, <laughs> two 15-year-olds keep That's it going funny. for them. Well, combined, you uh, were 30, so maybe that, Correct, yes. That I guess that meant With something. that logic. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a certain point where I kind of, after a few months, was like, oh, I wonder if I could get paid to do this and, and uh-huh. have, because it was at a time where I was about to get my driver's license and I was more independent and I uh, asked for a part-time job and there was just a, a yes, let's, yeah, let's make it happen. There was no interview, okay. no nothing. So it just kind of happened. And then from there, uh, I was thankful to experience a lot of outside LDs come through uh, they would hire since I was still in high school at the time. I didn't have the capacity to take on, you know, special events or Christmas or anything like right, that. Right. So they would bring in people. So I got to work with people like uh, Daniel Smallbone and and Tony Franson and oh, nice. uh, Darian Coop, a ton of amazing lighting designers and programmers to come through and uh, still keep in touch with uh, with all of them today. But through that, it kind of. Uh, helped me meet up and network to where I am today. But it kept progressing. And as soon as I graduated high school, at that time, Chris Thomas was actually our production director at Bayside. Okay. And he brought me on full-time after high school, and I started uh, doing all the road dates with Lincoln Brewster, who was the worship pastor there. Um, And it just... It quickly sped up, started doing all the Christmas designs, and that is also where I met Brian Vaughn at the time. And we collaborated um, and designed a lot of the Christmas productions, a lot of our conferences, which they had a, a they still do have a conference called Thrive. Right. And we uh, did a lot of that, guests coming through, meeting more LDs. And then was in 2015, Daniel Smallbone and I started getting close and working on projects together. And we, he brought me out to Nashville and we programmed the Casting Crowns tour in okay. that fall. And then uh, we had started talking about me having an interest in, in relocating to Nashville and, uh, and start working in the touring world. Okay. It was about a two-year process of me kind of being in my comfort zone and not wanting to leave Bayside, but then also wanting to right. leave Bayside. So it, sure. was, uh, 
it was too probably too long of a process, but I <laughs> it, it was a lot of a lot of prayer, a lot of thinking, a lot of unknown too. I was terrified of leaving. T- uh, I had no outside experience of Bayside. I had never worked anywhere else, never right really done anything. I mean, it even was, lighting wise, was your your kind of your oh yeah main experience. I guess going if you're on tour with Lincoln Brewster, that that was probably yes. Got, there was some touring things, was, yeah. Which I remember, I was. The first, I did a lot of fly dates. Most of our touring with Lincoln was fly dates. So I didn't okay. bring anything, uh, just a show file with me really and cloned. Okay. Uh, so I did learn to clone at a young age and <laughs> learned to do that well onto, uh, onto some really uh, janky uh, church mm. lighting rigs around uh-huh. the country. And it, that was a fun time for sure. Right, yeah. But I remember we did a big Christmas tour in 2012 or 2013 um, with okay. Lincoln, and that we had a full semi for that, a, an LED wall, like, and I was stoked. This was like the first time I was going to be on a bus. This was, I was, it was exciting. <laughs> I was absolutely one of the few people that it. were excited about, yeah, right, being exactly. on a tour bus. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was, what I was, like, not even eighteen yet at the time. So, oh wow. Um, and I got. <laughs> My my touring lighting tech with me was a, a good friend of mine still to this day, a guy named David Nava, and he worked in student ministries, so he had no experience in this world of production <laughs> or touring, and it was he and I doing this lighting rig. And then uh, another good friend who is, used to be Lincoln's drummer, Mike Johns, had the LED wall as his responsibility. So okay. it was just kind of a put-together <laughs> crew, and I remember like... Our, our load-ins, the first time we loaded in, I had no idea what I was doing. I right, thought I was right. prepared for this, but it was no just a stress. Well, and it's interesting because the the uh, Bayside culture is kind of based, from a production standpoint, based yes. in the touring world. And so changing out sets, rearranging things, reflying this and that is kind of normal. Oh, yeah. At least from my perspective. And so yes. I would have thought, yeah, you're totally ready for touring if right, you're exactly. coming out of Bayside. but. Yeah, it's like the different, the, you know, the variations of each location and right, right. Yeah, the challenges with a crew in a particular place. Yeah, yes, just all and different. that was that was the the interesting part about growing up and and starting my career at Bayside was the fact that we had these touring professionals that were brought in at the time when I started part time. Uh, really, Dave Carr was the only touring guy that had experience at the time, and then uh, Lee Fields ended up coming in, and then Aaron Padilla, who is now the audio right. director there, and all these guys with touring experience, and it started growing to that. And at that time, too, we started expanding campuses and Im- implementing systems in each campus that were touring setups and ready and everything on you know right. chain motors and, and loomed for... Uh, if we were to randomly, you know, set up a stage in the local mall parking lot and have Easter there, which did happen and (laughs) that kind of stuff. So in a way, yes, I was kind of prepared and brought up in the world of touring systems, but nothing can really prepare you for actually touring unless you just get thrown into it. And at that time I did. And my first tour being a lighting director for a decent sized rig in one semi truck um, was was quite a task, and uh, we got through. I think we had, what, 
it was only 20 shows or something, but we still bust around to the, the Midwest and whatnot. And it was in December, so I remember it being in some of those states absolutely freezing. Yeah, load out, no thank oh, you. Oh, yeah, and icy, <laughs> icy docks and whatnot. And yeah. It was, it, was a, it was a blast, and I am very thankful for those experiences, but in no way was I equipped or prepared. And there were plenty of times where our, uh, we brought out... Um, Ben Walton, who's a good friend of Bayside, he used right, to tour yeah. with the uh, the Newsboys for a long time as a production manager and a lot of things. He's he's a, he's a good guy, but he was whipping me into shape on that for sure. Like yeah, it was it was a I went through the ringer there for sure on that one. And then that actually the following Christmas we ended up doing Winter Jam with Lincoln, okay. and Daniel Smallbone at the time was designing winter jam so he hired me to come out on the winter jam tour as well and then i would also run lincoln set but that was my first time doing an arena size tour and i was the led tape tech which i don't (laughs) wish that job upon anybody and it was i remember having like my first panic attack on that show and it was like the first loadout i think we it was four trucks of of stuff and okay the first loadout, we closed the truck doors at like three or four in the morning, oh. and we had a a decent drive to the next city. And I remember we got there probably about noon or one p.m. Okay, and for a show doors, yeah. doors, <laughs> doors for Winter Jam open at like three p.m. <laughs> so I remember we are just starting to fly the lighting truss and video walls when doors are opening, and oh, I it, that whole. Winter Jam uh, tour is was was I contemplated whether I wanted to do that for a living after that <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you have to get past the first couple weeks of a tour. Oh, or, you do you know, several dates before you figure yes. out. Okay, we know how to do this and 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 the, the I was thrown into that role of LED tech or LED tape tech, which had a, a heavy amount of networking. Which at that time, I didn't have much knowledge of of networking and how it all worked and put together so when there was like i was on the phone a lot uh with people that knew what they were doing uh that whole time that's what i would be doing for sure exactly but luckily that whole we only did winter jam west coast which was like 15 shows so i i i remember taking a long vacation after that and i was just like uh what am i and that was in early Late November, early December, so right uh-huh. after Winter Jam, we r- went right into Bayside Christmas, which if anyone <laughs> has seen what Bayside does for Christmas, that also is, is, a, is a project to work on. <laughs> right. So, we would say back in, uh, when I was in Michigan at a church, we would say Merry freaking Christmas. Exactly, <laughs> that our, yes. That's our greeting to each and other. Y- you yeah. just released your book too with, the, with that title, and <laughs> right. I, there's... there's I remember seeing that cover for the first time and there was nothing more accurate than <laughs> than relating to that title. <laughs> yeah, it's something we all like. Uh, you don't like to admit it, but yeah, Christmas I could maybe do without or at least oh, yeah. the way my life is during that season. Yes, and ironically enough, I've now not worked full-time for a church since 2016. Okay. And I have done some sort of church Christmas production <laughs> Every, Every year, year since then, yeah. yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you can't escape it. Yes, yes, exactly. You're, you're getting rid of all the, you know, the normal times at church. and you Exactly. For the, cra- the crazy times only. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's on your business card, I think. Alec Takahashi, crazy times only. Yep, 
Yeah, that's. I think if you're in the world of production, that's that's just yeah, part of it. That's probably know? true. Yeah, <laughs> we kind of went off the rails with the with the story here. Went down a rabbit yeah, hole, but no but worries. That's what going, we're all about. Going back to the timeline of things, I had left and started working with Daniel Smallbone in 2016 and worked for his company, Lumina Design, for a mm-hmm. while. Okay, and that is when I ended up uh, started renting a house in East Nashville and moved out there. And for the first couple years I was in Nashville, I really didn't like it. And I think it was because I was gone so much. I didn't really create a community. I was tired when I was home, so I didn't really do anything. The Christian touring world is very demanding. And like I I was specifically out as a tech for a while and then lighting director on For King Country, which are Joel and Luke in in For King Country are Daniel's two brothers. So they obviously work very closely. And I remember the first summer I did with them, they did festival after, I I think we hit every Christian festival possible in that summer that I was first out with them. And I remember the month of August specifically, we, uh, what is it, 31 days in August or I don't know the months. But I we, think that's right. We did 27 shows in <laughs> the month of August. <laughs> and I remember after that, that one month specifically, we had like a week or two off and I was just dead because everything in August too, we were doing mostly, you know, Midwest, East Coast. It was just sticky and gross and everything right. was outside. And this this California boy, myself here, does not uh, like the humidity at all. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like anyone that lives in it uh, likes Nobody it either. Nobody so. do they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it definitely put me uh, into another another test of like wondering if I wanted to do this. But I honestly absolutely loved it. Um, as challenging as it was, it really taught me a lot of troubleshooting, uh, working with um, touring team. And right. it was that first year that I was actually truly on the road and, and doing that um, as a tech to start um, taught me a lot of, of leadership skills and working with you know local stagehands and, and right, unions. Right. And that's a whole world in itself of, of communication when touring because you have to get this show up on the road. The, you arrive that morning, you have a show that night. Like what, do you, what, what are the skills you need to communicate when you and maybe a handful of other people know how to do it and right. tell Most people how to doesn't. set it up? Yeah. yeah, right. And then it taught me too of, of prepping uh, in lighting shops of how things should be cabled and how, what are the easiest ways to loom everything together so it is quick and streamlined and, and labeled to where it plugs in and it just all this organizational things. There's a side to touring that people may not know about or think about. Right. Because your normal you know, church setup doesn't really have to move anywhere. So you just right. kind of run a cable, maybe not label it. It's... it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's it's a whole it's okay. different world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It, it almost so the first, I don't know, 8 years of my life in production was at a portable church, so we met in high yeah. school. And our setup was geared towards setting it up the same way every week. Yes. And yes. so it was a little bit more like touring in that everything's labeled, it all goes together the same way mm-hmm. every time. We and so as a result, we didn't vary from the plan very often because right. we didn't have time. Uh, and when you're on tour, I mean, you're kind of repeating the same thing in a new place, but everything plugs in exactly the same way. Oh, exactly. Otherwise, yeah, you'd be loading out at three in the morning every night. Yes. If you're, if you're changing it up. And I would arguably say that 
Christian touring within the church world is more difficult than doing uh, arena-sized tours oh, in, in the secular sure. world because I remember on, on Lincoln and we did a church run with King Country and Casting Crowns and all those ones that I was on, every, room, every church is so different right. in, in terms of, you know, power and all these things there there's a certain amount of details to that you advance so you know what you're getting into but to a certain point too you can't do much until you arrive to that room you don't know if drawings or pictures are accurate or some churches don't have any sort of documentation on their building too so it's just kind of you go in blind a lot of times and yeah hooking into their lighting network and things like that it just is a much more challenging day day to day than when you bring your own infrastructure into each arena and it goes up the same every day. Part of that I very much enjoyed and sometimes like I desire to do that, especially right now I desire, I would go do any, <laughs> any church tour right now or the yeah. worst festival I've ever done. I'd go back to that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, please, yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because the church, like in, a, in an arena, it's set up as kind of an empty shell right. that you're filling. Whereas when you're going into a church, we're all set up to do the thing we do. Yes. And so it's not an empty shell. We got stuff that we have that we need. And it's hard for, you know, just being at Willow Creek so many years and having tours come through there. Just it's a, yeah. it's a logistical, even there where, you know, Willow Creek is pretty well situated from a production standpoint, it's still hard to, well, you can't hang a motor there because... You know, X, Y, Z is already there or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, I, w I would say too, advice to, to church production people out there that may be listening, even if you don't have a lot of touring uh, acts or guests come through, I think it's always good to have your systems dialed, paperwork, organizationally ready for if someone wants to tie into your system or needs to uh, outside of your internal organization. Every day that a church had their documents accurate, up to date, any plots or anything like that just made the day exponentially better. Uh, and I think it's good internally too, just to keep everything up to date and you have references to everything and patch lists and plots and everything like that. Yeah, and I think if you've taken the time to get your paperwork up to date, that means you've kind of made sure things are working, you know, trace right. things out, make yeah, sure it yeah. all, it's all as it should be. And then, yeah, now you've got it all written down. Exactly. Which that from a leadership standpoint, you know, working with volunteers, like to be able to point to something and say, you can find the answer there. Right. Instead right. of I'll do it. Uh, you just like do this other thing instead. I'll take care of it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's, you know, every, every church change, change a set and, and scenic designs and uh, preparing your paperwork in advance for that too just allows you to have a, even an audio standpoint, you may be changing your, your band positions and where cables go and yeah. new instruments or whatever. If you, if you plan paperwork in advance, it just allows the change to happen smoother and more yeah. streamlined and less hiccups. Yeah, I think it's the interesting. I just think about my own life as a TD. I never did paperwork. I just was so <laughs> bad at it. And yes. so I was just making it up. I mean, <laughs> in my earlier years, I had no production experience except yeah. for the stuff I was doing. And so I didn't learn that, you know, paperwork was a thing or, you know, yes. even, even getting to the place where I was doing stage plots that were like 
dimensionally accurate. Right, right. Like, was a huge leap for me. Yeah. Um, dimensions are, dimensions can be important. Yeah. I mean, we were doing, you know, people were doing like pencil drawings on a piece of paper. Right. And I'm like, what if we actually knew, I mean, we know how big the stage is and how big a deck is. And yeah. Like, we could actually do this and know how it's going to fit. Right, exactly. Uh, instead of instead of you know just thinking that you're drawing something that's eight by eight when, yeah, really that's twelve by twelve what you're drawing. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. But in my situation, we were yeah meeting in a high school auditorium, and it's like we only have an hour to get this thing up and running. Right. So yeah. that that means we can only do so much, and the more paperwork I had, the better it would go. Yes, um, yes. It could just say, reference the stage plot and the, you know, the, oh gosh, what I'm drawing a complete blank. I'm so embarrassed. Whatever the, <laughs> the thing that, the input list. Oh, there, there you is. go, yeah. <laughs> that, I don't have one of those, but. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Or the, the lighting world. sheet or whatever, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that you're, you're not tied up answering questions that could be answered by a piece of paper right. instead. Yeah. Streamlining, especially too in the church world, when you have a team of volunteers, and just setting them up for success yeah. is is key. You you want overall the success of your service, and if you don't do your job in terms of preparing a volunteer for success, then ultimately the, the service is not successful. And that was right. a big thing too when we started at Bayside expanding campuses. I was centrally the only staff lighting director and designer, okay. so I went around and programmed each of the campuses, but it was up to me to program in a way that, you know, lined up with the vision and the the culture that we wanted on weekends at each campus, which right. uh, at the time we wanted it to be pretty equal across and, and feel the same, but unique in each campus's way. But then also set it up in a way where a volunteer could come to a lighting console and just go right, and have it be successful. And there was a, a strong air of flexibility uh, and last-minute decisions around Bayside. So it was also setting up my system in a way that could accommodate a volunteer to still be successful and be flexible with set lists and uh, right. band positions and things. So that was a huge challenge, and I'm very thankful for that now too because of that culture uh, that Bayside set is is very last minute and kept me on my toes and was very demanding in in ways to set up systems to to uh, accommodate that. Um, and when when you set up your systems in a way that accommodates flexibility and what overall the the style that is the leadership there, yeah. then you still it's less of a burden to accommodate changes if you set up your systems in that way, which I think is very important in in my personal emotional and mental health of of <laughs> not making things a burden or you know right setting things up in a way where you're still supporting the 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 leadership i think something you said yeah so key is just like the the way things are done at your at your church and what the leadership is looking for like it's it doesn't help anybody to set up a system that doesn't accommodate that right right if it just accommodates you you're probably not tuned into what the church is about or how things get planned or right, you know right. decisions get made so I was a lighting designer for a small chunk of my life and it was, I did, I cued everything. Everything had a cue. And so I would, you know, go yeah. through and check, make sure it was all right. And part of the thing about where I was, was that we pretty much, we had a, you know, run of show, we had a service order and we stuck to it. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we would do the first one as rehearsed and then maybe we would change it after that, but there was never any kind of like curveball that happened in the service. Yeah. yeah. And so the way I did lighting totally worked. Yeah, absolutely. Then, uh, you know, fast forward 15 years or whatever, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't work today. Right. Um, because <laughs> of how service, you know, we're going to add a chorus. We're going to, you know. Yeah, all oh, the spontaneous throw a moments. New song. Yeah, right. Uh, which I would have to learn a new way of doing lighting uh, right. to accommodate that, yeah, what the leadership was looking for the service to be. Yeah, exactly. And that flexibility, I mean, I learned a lot on my side of things of, of knowing when to ask for help or when to bring in some uh, additional professional lighting help when it was needed. And uh, it taught me where my boundaries were too of personal burnout and, and something right. I'm still striving for and learning today because I, if I'm putting my name or stamp on something, I want it to be the best it can. And sometimes that is not great for me because I won't sleep or I won't, <laughs> you know, I, I won't have a social life or whatever. I mean, there's a time and place right. for, for, for socializing, but in some projects that I've worked on, like people won't see me for, for a long time because I'm just bought into it. So it's a learning process on personally on that side of things. But yeah, I think it, what you're saying too is interesting because I think a lot of times as a technician or a technical artist or somebody that's doing something, yeah, I want what I want my work to reflect me, and so I want it to be excellent. And I want it to be. I think I would say I want it to be perfect. I don't want exactly. to make yeah. mistakes or whatever. And the challenge, I think, in the church world, or maybe anywhere, I mean, in in touring, you have the you have the luxury of like dialing things in every night, uh, you know, yes. so it gets better and better each night. Whereas on the weekends at church, we're doing something new next weekend, and so right, right a new opportunity to totally screw it up. So part of it, part of the kind of my wanting to nail it down and cue everything and have it just exactly right is I want it, I want it to be perfect. But really, uh, it's in someone else's hands, exactly, you know, yeah. ultimately, which is something that I need to get on board with. I need to get over it. I need to yes. somehow reconcile that I want it to be this way, which might not be exactly the way the organization needs it to be. Yes. And that's why I think it's important to, to continue off what you're saying there for, for everyone on a team, whether it be churches or touring or whatever, are, are, there's clear communication from the top of what we are all here to do and what the vision is as a team to achieve. When, when people's goals and vision are clear, then I think it allows the team underneath to know exactly what they need to do to do that. And then there is two-way communication, the whole process creatively day-to-day uh, -day about hiccups or any roadblocks or anything like that. So that uh, all the way down to the volunteer team, it is clear that we're all doing you know, this goal and th there's just leadership in a way to allow that to, to work in its best way yeah. uh, to achieve that. There's like, a, if you're on a team, which I would say the majority of the people listening to this are, you're a part of something bigger. And so right, right. on some level, you have the leader that's determining kind of what that bigger thing is. And then there's a place that we each fit into that. Right. And there's, there's, lead there's leaders that cast... And then there's the team that executes. And yeah, and so part of it is the things that matter. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about now that we're in it. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea that I'm a part of a team 
and I have a particular role to play that is unique to me. Yes. And my job is to do that the very best I can. Mm-hmm. But then at a certain point, I need to release it to the, the collective whole. Right. Like, because I think what matters most to me isn't always what matters most mm-hmm. to the whole group. Yeah, absolutely. And so I need to be willing to fight for my thing like it matters the most and then let it go like it, yeah. like it doesn't matter. Absolutely. Which I think is such a weird, yeah, it's such a weird dynamic of care a lot and then don't care. Right, uh, exactly. Know, in the same moment almost. Yes. And, and I struggle with that too, big picture of, of being the details and, and creatively I want something overall to be amazing. And even it bothers me when I'm, you know, attending or viewing something and even something sounds weird with a snare drum and I'm not an audio engineer at all, but I feel like I know it sounds good and right. bad. I don't know in the weeds of the, of the, you know, frequencies and all, yeah, the all that nerd stuff. Threshold you know? or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even uh, know what I just said, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's not my place to go over and be like, you know what, this doesn't sound good. Uh, uh-huh. but it just some sometimes it just rubs me the the wrong way of of caring about big picture details and and but that's why anything that lands within my my department which like on Thomas would be video content and anything visual really okay down to you know pyro timing and things like that that we did was like something that I I, I kept a close touch on and right it just the details really i think set apart excellence and they really matter and that's why i was you know sitting around in i don't it, you guys can go look at uh the thomas rett vhs tour very hot summer tour pictures uh, if you'd like but if you saw any of the pictures or see any we had like 140 claypacky mythos that kind of wrapped up in a wall and over ended up oh, going wow. up overhead too and from front of house position it was not the best position to update focus positions for all those fixtures. So okay. my focus time every day was like three to four hours of walking around the arena and on remotely going into the console from my phone and tweaking <laughs> positions and making sure things were parallel and looking really nice. And if anyone's worked with those fixtures at all or if anyone hasn't, they are not uh, very good <laughs> at keeping their positions day to day. Even oh, nice. if they're hanging in the same place on the same truss, nothing has moved when you turn power off and back on, it calibrates in a completely different spot, and it is a pain. <laughs> so <laughs> that was uh, that was. I still did it every day though, because I, there was times where I had to reset a fixture because those things were dropping like flies uh-huh. after I had done a focus. So by the time you know opening acts come do their shows, and I don't have full control of the rig. I can't go and update positions. We also had a kabuki drape that blocked everything of our stuff, so uh-huh. uh, I can't really go through and update then. So during show, I had my lighting crew chief on my backup desk next to me, and on comm, I'd be like, hey, this fixture, tweak it to the left a little bit, or, and I was having him do all the <laughs> positions as I'm running the show. Uh-huh. But that constant attention to detail, I think, is what sets uh, apart a great designer, director, any, in any role really uh, from, from a mediocre one. And I think that detail in our world, and even if you know, 
one person notices, I think that's still worth yeah. it. Well, and I think that it's interesting that you say each of the positions being totally accurate. There's a certain, I think, regardless of if you're a lighting person, audio person, whatever your thing is, there's a level at which of detail required to do that job well mm-hmm. that nobody cares about. Yes, yes. Nobody understands it. They don't think about it. They don't even know it exists. And so like repositioning mythos every night, you know, the production manager or whoever your boss is on that tour just needs it to be right. Oh, yeah. Doesn't doesn't know to ask, doesn't know what it is. Exactly. And it's your job. And so it is my job. And there's that that trust that is established, too, especially if if my production manager or if Thomas comes to me and has something that they put on my plate. They have trust. It's built up over time for sure. Sure. But they have the trust that it's going to get done and get done well. And that is something, especially for lighting designers and programmers and and directors, to establish trust and understand sometimes a great programmer and designer doesn't fit the style of another artist, so it doesn't work out in that way. And that's something they establish over time. But Thomas knows that I get a new, he wants to add a new set, a new song to the set, uh, that I'm gonna get it done, and he's yep. not there picking and and you know choosing micromanaging anything. Right. The only like really involved part that Thomas is in is like when we did video content that first year, and there's especially songs that have you know personal video content or pictures or that's kind of part of it. Ultimately, it's his show, so he sure, has right. any say he wants in it, but he has right. trust in who he has under him as well. So right, yeah, I think the there's a part of something that we all as technical people really, uh, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I want to collaborate with somebody to make something amazing. Yeah. And so with an artist, with a a creative person, I want to, let's make something together. And you don't get that opportunity if you're not, you know, uh, readdressing the mythos every night. Yes. You know what I mean? So like you, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that happens that really nobody understands or cares about. But if you're not doing it, everybody knows. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? But if you're doing it, maybe nobody knows that either. Exactly. Except that you're taking care of your stuff. And so, yes, okay, yes. now Alec can be trusted to, hey, let's do something interesting together. Right. Um, and I trust you. That trust comes from managing those details. Exactly, yeah. That are kind of the foundation for the other stuff. Yeah. And ultimately, I think a production manager is one of the most important roles because then they have the attention to detail to personally select the right people for each position to have those attention to detail moments. And uh, I applaud uh, uh, our, our former production manager, not with us anymore. Um, He's, he's alive, but he doesn't work for us. Yeah, I was going to say, did he pass away? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he doesn't work for us anymore. Uh, a guy named Kevin Twist, he hired some of the, the best people for us. Um, and uh, my crew from Upstaging, which happens to be in Chicago as well, or yeah, right, outside sure. of Chicago. Yep, Sycamore. Fantastic, also attention to detail, and worked really well with me. And I, I appreciate that as well from each tech that's on the road that had a portion of the lighting rig to set up had attention to detail and there's a lot on the plate to go up you know we had we had 10 trucks of production that went up each night and wow it's you know we are starting at nine in the morning and we have a show that night so we're working with speed but also need to maintain that 
that excellence and consistency for the show each night that that we're putting on. Like people are paying good money to see this show, so yeah, we need to the make only sure. Time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah we first we get to time. see it every night. We have to put it up every night, but right. we we need these people to have their experience and what they paid for and and what Thomas is paying for too. Like this is yeah. something he dreamed up collaboratively and. I, th- I think collaboration's a huge thing in in the creative world, and especially with lighting. There's not a design that I've worked on by myself ever. That yeah. that just doesn't happen. And I think it is important to have collaboration in anything you do, and have outside opinions and accountability, that kind of thing. Right. I think it's uh, that outside opinions is a tough one for a lot of. Well, maybe it's tough for everybody, but. Yeah. For tech people especially, you know, there's a there's a part of it that we speak such a different language than a you know, a creative idea person maybe. And I know that person doesn't have a clue what I do or how it gets done or what's involved. Yeah. And so I already have a little bit I'm just like speaking for myself. I have a little bit of superiority feeling over that person. Like you have right, no idea right. what you're talking about or whatever. <laughs> and so you, it's real easy to like have a start out from an adversarial point. Yes. Um, but to really collaborate, you said it, like you're going to get outside opinions. You're going to be held accountable. But that's part of what collaboration is about. And so uh, if you want someone to take your outside opinion – you have to be willing to receive it too. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And so, yeah, you know, to be—I mean, part of it is to not be so wrapped up in your design that it's a—it's a, a reflection of you personally, right? Uh, you know, you're not—we're not, not taking—they're not taking shots at you, right? Well, you can't have every uh, every critique yeah. be a, a bullet to your chest, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> like they just don't like this effect that you've programmed in yes. this moment. And I think if you're not open to that outside critique, then you're just doing lighting for lighting's sake right. or audio for audio. It's like, this is what I like. Well, this is not what works exactly. for what we're trying to do. Which is huge in the church world because creativity, I think, has to sometimes take a back seat in, in the church world if it's not part of the overall vision for of sure. the organization. Yeah. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of times where Brian Vaughn from Fireplay and I, where he... He and I, again, worked at Bayside together on a lot of things. We have, I have not programmed more with anyone other than him. Uh-huh. And he and I have a fantastic relationship with programming a show together, simultaneously working on different things. But there's been plenty of times in like Thomas Rhett rehearsals where we're there at like four in the morning. We're absolutely fed up with each other. And we're just <laughs> nitpicking each other's designs yeah. and programming. And it's just, there's a certain point too where you need to like take a step back and and, right. and maybe take a break or whatnot because you just kind of get on each other and, and yeah. the exhaustion sets in and you just start <laughs> ripping each other apart. Yeah, so funny. To make something amazing requires work and it's not easy. Uh, if it were easy, there'd probably be more of it happening. But exactly. there's a there's a documentary about the building of the 2015 Ford Mustang. I think it's 2015. Okay. Like it was a total redesign yeah. of, of the thing. And so they were interviewing the head engineer, uh, who's the guy who's like taking the design and trying to fit the mechanical parts into it. Okay. You know, so like this is what we want it to look like. Now fit the engine and the heating and cooling and right. all the other stuff has to fit inside this. 
which is a pain, you know, it's a pain. And he, but he was just saying like, well, who wants to, anybody can engineer a box. Right. Like, right. We can shove this in a box. Anybody could do that, but we're creating something amazing and it's yes. going to take work. Oh yeah. And it's not going to be easy and it's going to take tons of compromise, but we'd all rather do this than, Hey, look, I fit this engine into a square spot, you right. know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it takes work. Yeah, I grew up appreciating everything that the Walt Disney Company does. Okay. My my dad has always been a big Disney fan. I grew up going to Disneyland a lot. And I just started appreciating at a young age what like all the Imagineers do. Right. And and their attention to detail on on architectural textures and paint and all these things that ninety nine percent of guests in their parks don't notice. It's fascinating to me that people take the time to set that apart from, you know, in their, in their profession, they just take it and they, and they go with it and they put their heart and soul into building, designing or whatever. And I, I think it's very important as, as creatives in the church or in the touring world or wherever you are uh, professionally, I think you should own 100% what you do. And I recently, over the the course of quarantine, watched all of the Imagineering story on Disney+. Plus and oh, right, sure. Uh-huh. Just, I was emotional at many parts of that. It I, it's blew my mind of just what goes into, even in the 50s when they were designing Disneyland for the first time and the, the engineering they did to figure out the animatronics at the time, just the technology right. didn't exist. But Walt was like, you know, we're going to make it. And and even to this day, and what Disney's doing now is always pushing the bar. And then same with um, a lot of the creatives in, in the world of like Apple and the tech world. And it's it's fascinating. And, and there's, it takes a unique person to absorb that. And their work definitely shows yeah. for, for what they do and their, and their character. And I think it's, that's so much like a lot of what we do in that I think if production is done well, so many people will say, you, you hope that people will say, that was amazing. It yeah. was an amazing experience. But they will not be able to kind of put their finger on exactly what it was. Yeah. Uh, versus there was a Christmas uh, service that I was a part of a long, long time ago. And I, where I was talking to some non-production people about it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, man, that service, the, the lighting was amazing. That was the yeah. only comment they had. I'm like, hmm, probably too much lighting. <laughs> I probably blew it. <laughs> right. You know, if that's the thing you remember, instead of it just being like a great experience. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah it's true. At, at Disney, you can't necessarily put your finger on it, but you're, it's a great experience. And yeah, so it is. Uh, what we do, yeah, falls into a very similar category. Yeah, down to the customer service at Disney, which I always pressed into at even when we were sitting in creative meetings at, at back at Bayside of like overall weekend experience. I was always for like I felt like at a time we had pretty good weekend service experience in the building. But then we started talking about like, oh, what about as soon as you arrive into the parking lot, how's your experience? Sure, yeah. And I think that matters in a, in a in a church world too, like overall, great, your service is great, but what is the on-campus experience? What's a new guest experience like? What right, is your right. experience in the cafe or the coffee shop like? Right. Overall, I think the details down to like how you train your ushers to interact with guests, all of it matters. And that's, I think, what sets apart Disney and Chick-fil-A even. They, their yeah, customer right. service experience is second to none. 
Yeah, off and the charts. There's a reason why people will pay a little bit more to go to Chick-fil-A and get that experience. Well, uh, and the and chicken working sandwich is so good. Oh, it's uh, amazing. Well, Chick-fil-A sauce <laughs> just... Like Which I am glad now. I don't know if you've seen, but the Chick Fil A sauce is now in supermarkets. No so you way! Can, you can buy them in <laughs> in the bottles. Oh my gosh! There goes my caloric intake <laughs> just through the roof. Yes. <laughs> oh man, this has been great. We should do this again for sure. Yeah, because, it's been fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah, it was just great to catch up and yeah, talk about details and collaboration and yeah. yeah all the stuff it had been a while i mean i think the last time i saw you was at, at oh i guess nam nam yeah, yeah it was almost the last thing anybody did was right NAM. maybe that's what caused was the tipping point NAM i was bummed to not come to uh philo in person this year yeah me too we had the the <laughs> virtual breakout which was a lot of fun but i you missed the interactive part totally yeah afterwards but yeah, it's oh. funny. I've been thinking about just the Philo experience, and we're getting we're planning a in person one in twenty twenty one, hopefully, and uh, trying to remember like key moments from the past, and yeah. all of them are just about people. That it's, yeah. I don't really remember specific moments on stage or specific breakouts, but it's just exactly. about that time I bumped into this person or this thing that happened with people, and yeah. Yeah, just there's I, nothing I couldn't really tell compares. you exactly what I talked about last time I taught at Philo <laughs> uh-huh. or what was happening, but I do remember just about all the conversations I had with people after that. Yeah, yeah. So it does uh, go a long way. I, ho- I hope to uh, do that again. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, we'll definitely, I think we'll be calling you soon. So, um, and I think uh, maybe just since you mentioned it, uh, we were at NAM together, and uh, you were there because you were nominated for a Pernelli Award. I was, yes. <laughs> yeah, you didn't win, but you were I dressed win. nice. No, yeah. a, a friend of mine, Tony Caparole, won. He's the lighting designer for Billie Eilish. Okay. Great guy, w- great show, very deserving of the award. Yeah. But it was. But, a, I mean, even to be honor. on the short list to win. Oh, yeah. yeah I was like, blown away by yeah. uh, being nominated alongside... Uh, you know, like the Rolling Stones LD, Jennifer Lopez LD, Paul McCartney. Like it was a yeah. all-star list of shows that to be <laughs> <laughs> alongside with uh, with my my nomination there it was it was pretty nuts. Yeah, and I had never been cool. to Nam before and actually walked the floor. Like we had played uh, the the Night of Worship with Lincoln a couple times. All oh, right, uh-huh. but I usually after that or before that went over to Disneyland and never went to Nam. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the first year that I walked the floor, and it is uh, it is noisy in there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, which I think is where we bumped into each other. <laughs> yes, uh, we did. I think was in, in the D and B booth. Yes, that's exactly yeah, where it yeah. was. <laughs> Oh, oh and I guess I won't see you at Passion this year either. We were on Passion Conference. Oh, we last were. Year. Yeah, that's right. The overnight shift. <laughs> that was uh, a fun at, night. <laughs> uh, if you if you say so. <laughs> oh my goodness, there was a lot of problems that night. I'm, oh, I'm trying to remember. The, it was an, the rehearsal schedule was just ambitious. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think we had one every hour. There was a different band that was sound checking. Yes, and we started sound check started at, at one a.m. or something. One yeah. a.m. because the 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 session that night ended at like midnight, so we let the room right. oh, empty. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We let the room empty and then started sound checks for the next morning at 1, and they oh. lasted until doors at like 8 a.m., and I and was... Yeah. Oh, we, was we, there rough. was some problem, too, like time code problems. There like was a lot of signal issues. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like five or six bands that are coming into the stadium show, 
and oh just gosh. hoping well, and all were, of these patch lists are accurate. And yeah, there were three audio consoles. Or like, yeah, going which to console broadcast. are you plugging into? Yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. There was a oh ton gosh. of ton of lines to go everywhere, and then, <laughs> yeah, and everyone at that point was already very tired. So it was right. it was a it was a eventful night. But I yeah. mean, passion went on, and it was a good year. Yeah, it was for, a yeah, it phenomenal was, uh, end result. But man, that night. Uh, well, the, you know what? I always say like the goal of rehearsal is to find the problems and you're, you're like, if we have a bumpy rehearsal, that's not a bad thing. That just oh, yeah. means that the, hopefully the show goes better. So oh, exactly. And I think every session went on without a hitch pretty yeah, much. Really like, nothing. Yeah. It was uh, no one would have realized the, what we went through in those <laughs> rehearsal overnights. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. What a night. All yes. right. Cool. Well, Thanks for your time. Yeah. It's great to, great to hang out and yeah. we'll and I'll talk add, soon. add real quick, if anyone wants to reach out or DM me oh, on yeah. Instagram or uh, whatever, I'm, I'm do, I'm not doing much this year. So <laughs> I actually had a, I had a zoom call with a high school student that reached out to me interested in lighting that lives in Tennessee yesterday. And oh, we nice. just chatted for like an hour and a half. So okay. if you ever want to reach out, uh, find me on Instagram, just at Alec Takahashi. There it is. Great. Yes. So cool. All Thank right. you for having me. My first yeah. podcast. Yeah, been you did bl- good. Been a blast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. See ya. All right. Bye. Oh, that was so great. For me, a few of the highlights from my conversation with Alec. Uh, the first one was Details Matter. You know, stuff like cue sheets and input lists, they really make a difference, especially most of us are working with volunteers and so they're not around all week. They show up to do their serve and we need to give them the information. And so having all those details together really matters. Also, collaboration is key to being a successful technical artist. Uh, You know, not just to share ideas, you know, collaborating that way, but really to open yourself up to other people's opinions of your ideas and your work. And not just, you know, kind of stay inside your own bubble. I think inside your own bubble, it can be real easy to think your ideas are the best, which is why we need other people's uh, opinions speaking into our lives to help us realize that eh, not everything we think of is amazing. Also, being accountable to others along the way for results is such a huge necessary part of making stuff together, which is why collaboration is so critical. Alec also talked about the Imagineering Story documentary, which is currently on Disney Plus, which of course you have a subscription to because you've been watching The Mandalorian over and over again. He loved just how much they spent on every tiny little detail, which 99% of people attending the parks, you know, would never even notice, but they would know. Uh, This has definitely been added to my list of movies to watch, along with The Donut King. So look that up, The Donut King. I'm fascinated by the donut culture. Anyway, that's a totally separate, that might be a totally new podcast idea, donut culture. Anyway, good times. And other Philo-related subjects, uh, we sent out a survey during the month of November as a way to gather information on how everyone is doing during COVID and what, if anything, Philo can help with. Uh, There were a couple big surprises for me in the answers we received. And generally speaking, we are all dealing with the same challenges we've always had which is amazing to me. Work-life balance, nobody understanding what we do. You know, just the stuff that pre-COVID were, was kind of an issue. And I was really pleasantly surprised by the answer to the question, 
How well are you connected to your worship leaders and your pastor to God? Now, either people are lying or we have better relationships with key people as we collaborate on a more regular basis. You know, when you're pre-recording services, you're sort of locked in a room together almost in closer proximity to try to pull off services. And yeah, maybe that's helping relationships, which I absolutely love. And maybe the more time at home has given you a chance to read your Bible more or pray more or some way be connected to God in a more deep way, uh, which is so great to learn. Uh, The other big thing I noticed about the survey was how tired of COVID we all seem to be. I mean, you know, all of it sort of piling up and not knowing what's going to happen from week to week and next month and, you know, all the extra hours doing things that we're not, you know, we haven't been normally doing. I mean, these are real issues and similar to pre-COVID times, we're in a marathon, not a sprint. And I think especially because COVID seemed like it was going to be a sprint at the beginning that we kind of came out of the gates really fast. And just the realization that, you know what, we need to slow down and pace ourselves. And it's important for you and me as individuals to figure out a rhythm that works best for each of us. Not that might work for someone else, but for you with your family, with your responsibilities, with your capabilities, with your team's capabilities, what is that rhythm? What should it look like? What should your pace be? Each of us needs to determine what we can handle. No one else can do it for us. And I would just say, as we enter into 2021, I would spend some time to figure this stuff out because you know what? January 1st is a great start over. It's just culturally part of where we live that it's okay to say, hey, I'm gonna start new now on January 1st. So don't let this January 1st go by. Take advantage of a chance to kind of figure out what your rhythms should look like. COVID has been as much a mental challenge as it has been a physical challenge. I mean, I noticed that just sharing what's going on and how hard it feels has been great, you know, to to share it with someone who understands, who's going through it also. And you know what, nothing's really changed. Just to feel heard and understood is huge. And that somebody else is kind of wrestling through it also. Yeah, it's so great. And finally, on the survey, you told us that the podcast has been helpful to you. And that's great news. I love having the conversations, but I'm just so grateful that what we're doing is meaningful to you. So like most everything we do around here at Philo, you know what? If people can benefit from me having a conversation with others about the challenges we face as technical artists, I mean, that's amazing. I know I'm getting a lot out of it. So the fact that others can as well is just a bonus. And also thanks for sharing your encouragement and your ideas for topics and potential guests. So we're going after all that stuff. Being in community is one of the other key components to what we have going on here at Philo. And without an in-person event in 2020, I really noticed how much I've missed and others have missed being together. And, you know, the cohort was a huge boost for me in that department. But as we look to Philo a conference in 2021. We're doing our best to plan an in-person event because we want to be together so bad. You know what? But at the same time, we just we're trying to be smart about what we can practically be able to do. And we'll definitely keep you posted as we come to a decision on what the Philo conference in 2021 will look like. Whatever we do, you know what? The ticket you buy now will work for either experience. And we're working really hard to just create an event that you and your team are going to walk away having, you know, being better at the end of it. Uh, That's our goal. 
And so we're really working hard to create an event that will be useful for you and your team. So you can check out philo.org for all the details on what's going on with the Philo Conference. You can also follow us on social media at Philo Community on Facebook and Instagram and at Philo Conference on Twitter. You can always see what's happening on our website, philo.org. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, you can send us an email at philopodcast at philo.org. All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye.